Folks, this is a zombie-heavy episode of the Screen Watching Podcast. We're looking at Zack Snyder's latest opus. It's called Army of the Dead. It's a new film dropping on Netflix in just the next couple of hours as we speak. Myself and Simon have already taken a look at this, and we have some thoughts. Also, thoughts in other film and TV directions. I take a look at Solos, which is the new Amazon Prime series. It's a huge cast and doesn't necessarily live up to it. We'll find out. Son of the South is a brand new film hitting cinema screens, I presume. Simon will tell us about that shortly. Masters of None, season three. I've watched all of it and I've got some thoughts there also. And Songbird, that's a new film. And Simon's going to tell us all about that. Uh, we've also got news. We're going to talk about the new Mouse Ride album. Folks, there is a lot to get through and I'm going to stop dilly-dallying and let's dive right in. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett, and I'm joined by a master of some... It's Simon Foster. Good morning, Dan Barrett. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone else. Uh, thanks for joining us on Screen Watching. You're not kidding. I look down this run sheet every week, promising we'll make it shorter. In fact, things get busier and busier for us. Uh, we will be talking to Natalie Bibau. She's the director of a terrific new documentary called The Walrus and the Whisperer. It's uh, having its premiere on the iWonder platform in the days ahead. Boy, some big news this week as well uh, with the Discovery Warner Media merger. Uh, you'll be taking a look at that. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is back. That was the worst Arnold Schwarzenegger I've ever done. Um, but we'll be looking at what he's up to as well. Bring in the contemporary today, kids. Okay, folks, get your ass to Mars. We're about to start talking about some TV shows and movies. It's... Thanks. Okay, Simon, you and I, we hit the cinema screens on, was it Tuesday night? We got invited by Netflix yep. to take a look at the new film, Army of the Dead, directed by Zack Snyder. Let's take a clip. Okay, Simon, before you dive into your review of it, I have to say this is going to be an interesting one in that we saw this on the big screen. Very few people will get that opportunity. Sure, in the US, they had a limited run of screenings over the last weekend. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, they've made about 750 grand of box office takings. So certainly people got out and took a look at this in cinemas in the US. But in Australia, we certainly won't see it on cinema screens. Most people will see it on a smaller screen. And I do wonder whether the absolute enthusiasm that I had for the film will be replicated by people watching on that smaller screen. But Simon, give us your thoughts. Well, uh, that is a, a, a valid point you make there, Dan. It is a film that... Um I really enjoyed on the big screen. As with most Zack Snyder films, it's 20 minutes too long. At 148 minutes, um, moments of it seemed a little overdone. Uh, but that's what Zack Snyder's all about. He's kind of back in favour at the moment with the uh, the Justice League cut, um, finding a lot of a lot of friends uh, in the for, for Zack. Um, and I would probably hazard a guess that Army of the Dead was given a uh, he was given fairly free reign to, to do what he wanted to do by the Netflix people. Um, in a brief synopsis, and really for a 148-minute movie, the plot is very brief, um, a zombie outbreak has happened in Las Vegas. A group of mercenaries led by Dave Bautista um, uh, go after huge wads of money that are in a, um, a casino's vault and have been left inside the city. Um, they head into the quarantine zone to pull off 
um, what is considered to be one of the greatest and most dangerous heists ever attempted. So you basically have a heist movie um, with zombies, zombie tigers, zombie horses, um, and all sorts of crazy things happening within the Las Vegas precinct. Um, That's not unusual in itself. Las Vegas is a crazy place even at the best of times. But you add in hordes of zombies and you have a uh, an action adventure film that delivers on both those fronts in both action and adventure and in gore um it certainly earns its r rating um in terms of originality if you've seen aliens you know all the beats this is very much um filled with the dna of the james cameron sequel um as someone who has seen that film about 20 times i noticed even the smallest references to, to aliens and it became a little bit distracting um but there's no doubt that snyder knows how to a film zombies and b film zombies attacking people so uh in the end felt a little bit exhausted by the end of it but uh, but, but thoroughly enjoyed it yeah, I didn't find it to be as overtly aliens as that you definitely felt because that was the first thing you said coming out of the cinema. Mm. So the place to probably really start the conversation is talking about the fact that he has called her of the dead. So this is obviously hearkening back to the George Romero of the dead film. So uh, Dawn of the Dead and uh, there was even, yeah, Dawn of the Dead, which Zack made himself. It was a remake a couple of years ago. And that was the first time I saw Zack Snyder. I don't know if he'd made anything before then or not. But like, I remember being thoroughly impressed by that film when it came out. And when I saw that, I do remember thinking it was maybe lacking in the satire of the Romero films a little bit. That's clearly not really his focal point of interest. So he never really played around the satire, which Dawn of the Dead, the idea of that was supposed to be the mindless hordes of people that go to shopping centers on a regular basis. And that's what Romero was playing with. And it seemed that Zach was more interested in the zombies of it all rather than necessarily the satire of it all. Mm-hmm. Here he's doing a original work, which is satirizing in theory the idea of mindless people going to Las Vegas and playing the pokies. I don't think that Zach really had much of an interest beyond that as just a conceit. Not so at all, yeah. He, he, did, little, he didn't lean into yeah, that they, at all, yeah. Yeah, they spend no time at all on the floor of the casinos around like the pokies. Like you see it a little bit. There's one big action sequence towards the end that's certainly set there. But it just kind of felt like he was in Vegas, the city. And even the city itself, he doesn't really play around with much beyond just some various obvious iconography. Like there's a few Elvises around and that kind of thing. But I don't know. I, I feel there's a lot more you can play with in a satirical zombie sense around Vegas that is not really touched here at all. But he only had two hours and 20 minutes. So who am I to judge? <laughs> That said, it's a lot of fun. If you want something that's very mindless and it's really juvenile in a lot of ways, and that's not a criticism because I think that's what Zack Snyder actually excels at. It's very sort of cheap 12 to 14 year old boy thrills and you certainly get that from the movie. I had a great time watching it, but it's also a little bit of a hollow experience in some regards. Totally agree with that. Um, I guess we should point out that arguably stealing the show in much the same way that Lance Henriksen stole Aliens was Tig Notaro, <laughs> who's been um, green screened into this movie after a previous cast member was was proven to be uh, unsavory in many ways. Um, it is just so completely convincing uh, that she's been inserted into quite a number of scenes. She plays a fairly significant part in the film. So um, You know what? I, I had no idea. This is actually news to me. I just assumed she was there as part of oh, the cast. Oh, really? I no. no reason to think otherwise. Uh, Chris Dealey, I probably shouldn't mention his name. He, he, I think he was the other cast member who was completely cut out of, of that part. And it's hard to imagine this film without Tig Notaro's um, humour and sort of scene-stealing comedy bits um, as the very tough-talking, cigar-chomping pilot. Um, she's terrific. 
rest of the cast, unnegligible. Dave Bautista does what he has to do. He plays a big, sweaty, muscly soldier type, and he does that very well. Um, and also Nora Anezeda, who's uh, terrific as sort of the, the guide who leads them into the the uh, the fallen city of Las Vegas. So you're right, in every regard, it's just a big, dumb, uh, crazy zombie movie, and on that front, it absolutely delivers. Tell us about Solos. Solos is a brand new show that's launching on Amazon Prime Video. Let's take a listen. A memory isn't simply a thing you have. It's a promise. Dr. Ian Malcolm once told us that nature will find a way. When COVID resulted in a shutdown of TV production, the industry reacted in a number of ways. Some shows just went dark, others found a way to work around the logistical nightmare of producing TV in a COVID-safe way, and then there were those who found COVID as a creative challenge. Some of the latter creatives did special one-off Zoom presentations, most of which were awful, but others got a bit more creative, which brings us to Solos. This is seven episodes of unconnected stories, each involving some sort of sci-fi conceit. Every episode runs between 20 to 30 minutes, and stars some very well-known actors playing in stories where they're actually appearing on screen playing against versions of themselves. Technology people. Not since Liberace played twins in a 60s Batman TV show have we seen on-screen doubles being so convincing. All the episodes that are written by David Whale, who directs a few of them as well. Other directors include Scrubs and Kickstarter financier Zach Braff. And stars include Anne Hathaway, Anthony Mackie, Uzo Aduba, Morgan Freeman, Helen Mirren, uh, Nicole Bahari, uh, Constance Wu, Jack Quaid, Dan Stevens, an all-star cast. So when confronted with the new anthology series, my disinterest generally is pretty high. I'd rather see half-hour stories expanded into branded features that exist on their own, rather than a series of these stories that is kind of smashed together, even though they don't necessarily hold together entirely well. Because in a world of so much content, a series of unconnected stories doesn't really hold a great deal of appeal in the current climate. But this one at least has a really strong gimmick that drives its interest. And from the few episodes I watch, the show, it's a high-concept black box theatre production. It's seemingly produced and written by a troupe of uni students, and while there's some decent performances, so much of it's just overridden, and it just kind of feels a little bit amateurish, and just the... It's a professional production, but just the spirit of intent just kind of feels just... It's, it's amateur hour. It never feels like anything more than an exercise in filling in the schedule for some very high-profile actors. Now, 10 years ago, a show like this would have landed much, much better. It's a series of stories that we've seen before. The opening episode has Anne Hathaway questioning whether she should use her ability to speak to her future and past selves in order to change time to prevent her mother from having an accident that would see her life end in a slow and agonizing way. We've seen variations of that story before. Now, what should make it interesting is how it's told, and simply, it isn't really done here with any imagination. These are actors in a single stage setting talking to themselves. It's a theater show, and that's fine, but more needed to be done in terms of the presentation. Consider a show like In Treatment. That's an HBO show, which is also back this weekend. It also has solo star Udo Buda in it. And that show takes a very theater-like format with a therapist talking to a set of clients. And it moves the drama out of some very stagey conversation for about 30 minutes. But that show played with the structure of TV. I'm not sure how the current season of the show operates, but previous seasons had a new episode every night, five nights a week for 10 weeks. It told theatrical stories in an interesting way that reshaped how TV narratives are told. But there's no reshaping taking place here. Like this does not do anything to push the form forward. If anything, it just feels like a stripped back, dull exercise of television. And if you're gonna do stripped back television, you need to be far more clever about what you're doing than is anywhere near on display here. 
Well, that sounds like a scathing review of solos. I was keen because of that star power. Merrin, Freeman, Dan Stevens, uh, Hathaway, all sort of doing small screen work is exciting. But um, solos may just uh, have been moved down my to-watch list quite significantly. Thank you, Dan Barrett. Look, if you're somebody who goes into TV wanting to see performance, like if that's the one thing that really drives your interest, you'll probably get something out of it here. But just the stories lack imagination. The production itself is equally lacking in imagination. It just doesn't do anything that really pushes anything forward. And I don't know, I got very bored with it very quickly. Let's continue the theme of projects being made during the COVID-19 quarantine period and uh, have a look and listen to Songbird. Tensions rise as we enter the 213th week of lockdown. A grim new reality emerges. COVID-23 has mutated. Beginning thermal scan. Thermal scan normal. A horrifying new development new today. New data confirms the virus attacks the brain tissue. Oh, whoa, 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 I'm immune. I'm immune. In this new theatrical feature, it's 2024 and COVID-23 has taken hold. Now, this is a a slightly futuristic um, uh, sort of a look at what might have happened to American society, Los Angeles society in particular, if the inaction of a certain administration had continued unfettered. Uh, Los Angeles is in total shutdown. People have not left their homes for many, many months. each home has a decontamination unit at the front door, which uh, anyone entering each other's houses or any goods or packages being handed across has to go through. Um, it's been mandated by law that this uh, this sort of technology is taken over. Drones rule the skies, um, and uh, people like Demi Moore and Bradley Whitford and Alexandria Daddario live in their own sort of created realities inside their homes which have become slightly off-centre. Um, at the centre of this story is a an immune uh, courier played by KJ Appa. His name is Nico, and he gets to ride the vast open streets of Los Angeles unfettered. He has a crush on Sophia Carson, um, a young girl locked inside her own house with a dying grandmother played by Elpidia Carrillo, who many will remember from Predator. Um, she is... Uh, Sophia Carson's character is uh, determined to get together with Nico um, and what uh, starts out as a a fairly sort of bleak and dark vision of a society um, totally gripped by pandemic conditions turns into a kind of romantic chase movie which doesn't seem all that important at the end but certainly the first half of Songbird and it's produced by Michael Bay so it looks terrific the first half creates this really sort of dark and scary and um, totally Uh, ripped from the headlines kind of view of a a big city that just didn't handle the onset of a a COVID-type pandemic when it should have. Uh, It's called COVID-23 in the movie, so it uh, implies that there's been many different strands. Um, This is one of the more interesting films, I thought, that came out of the COVID period, um, with good performances all around, certainly a good-looking film in parts. Like I say, it sort of deteriorates into a... Uh, a a crazy Peter Stormare performance who uh, we know he's done before he plays a sanitation department official who's after everybody in the film Um, but overall this one which barely sort of got noticed during its American release and and creeps into Australian cinemas this week is probably worth a look just for the way it handles what uh, a narrative that um, of a world that, that may have happened that came very close to happening
Is this a film that comes out maybe just a little bit too soon? Like, is it a bit too real for us to really be talking about the after effects of another pandemic? That's an interesting point. I think that's probably what took a big chunk out of um, audience interest in it in the US. I think for me, it... (sighs) It envisions a world. It's not sort of taken from today. It's not showing the suffering of today, but it's doing what a lot of good science fiction does, and that's imagining forward, and that's um, taking us using the experience we're having right now and imagining where we could be. Um, A lot of very positive, upbeat sci-fi does that. Songbird is not that kind of movie. It looks at a world that's quite dark and corrupted by the... um, that's had its morals corrupted by the the horror of of a pandemic. Um, But I don't don't doubt that that's exactly what uh, many will feel, that there's just been a little too much of real-world COVID to bother sitting down to watch some big-screen COVID. Um, But it... Regardless of that, it's, it's not a bad little movie. Simon, let's move on. Let's have a chat about the new season of Master of None. Let's say yeah. we're at a party. Mm-hmm. Maxwell's playing. Love him. You don't know me. I don't know you. And I ask you on a date. Would you say yes? Master of None returns for its third season, and in typical Master of None fashion, the new season's experimental and has some lofty artistic intent. It's a show that's always punched above its weight, with episodes that exhibit some impressive cinematic ambition. Now, with the new season, the show may have stepped a little bit too far. It's a pivot from prior seasons, which focused on the series star Aziz Ansari. The new season of the show instead casts its eye on supporting character Denise, played by Lena Waite. Now, we've seen previous episodes of the show focus on her, such as the season two episode Thanksgiving, which saw both Aziz Ansari and Lena win an Emmy Award for Best Writing. That episode, you may remember, showcased on the story of her coming out. Now, the new season of the show shows Denise living happily in a farmhouse with her partner, played by Naomi Ackle. They're in a long-term serious relationship, and the subject of having a kid together arises in the first episode. Things, as the series progresses, do not go smoothly. This is a season that focuses on the raw emotional brutality, that trying to become parents can be for some couples, and I'd imagine there's going to be a lot of viewers watching the show who can relate to elements of this season all too well. On its face, this is an astounding five episodes of TV. It's raw and honest. It may lack in the laughs department, but the emotional truth on display more than makes up for it. Aziz Ansari, who directed every episode and co-wrote the five episodes with Waite, has really crafted something special, and Waite's a dynamo on screen as the very distant and cold Denise. Now, where the show is somewhat of a struggle is that it's fighting against expectation. It's As a series that stands on its own, the five-episode run is incredible. But as a Master of None season, it just isn't what that show is. Master of None's about the pursuit of the warmth of romance. This is a colder, more clinical look at the bond of an established relationship and the very real challenges that can threaten to rip it apart. Don't go into the series, think of it as season three of the show, but consider it as a spin-off series and you're going to have a far better time with it. Expect a lot of attention to this season over the coming months. It's a conversation starter in all the best ways that art can be, and it'll definitely do a clean sweep at any award shows over the next year, should they actually end up going to wear and should anyone see them. Good review. Now I'm keen to see that one. I'd seen moments of the first two seasons of Masters of None, and certainly an Ansari fan, but um, he fell from grace a little bit. He's returned, obviously, with... um an answer to all his critics in that regard, and and this sounds like the a, a, a series to watch. Which of the streamers is it on? That's not on our running sheet. Uh, so this is on Netflix. Netflix, beautiful. All right, tune in for Masters of None. Finally, in cinemas, I got to have a look at a little film called Son of the South. I was in a riot, and I walked right through it, unharmed. What is the point you're trying to make? 
Maybe I could go around college campuses talking to students about the Negro cause. What the hell do you think you're doing? Son, I'm starting to wonder if you are aware of the poison in the apple that you have bitten into. Lucas Till, who we know from MacGyver in the X-Men film, stars as Bob Zellner. Now, this is the true story of a young man who in the 60s um, defied his family's uh, Ku Klux Klan um, history and took on social reform and social injustice at a time when it was going on all around him. But much of his um, statesmen, uh, the grand state of Alabama, were fighting against change. Um, He... This movie sort of covers the the early stages of his um, crusade. Uh, He went on to become one of the most important social reformers in American history and carried a lot of that state's change uh, with him, exposed its shame and um, made sure that uh, the African-American experience in America um, began, at least began the road to, to recovery and understanding um, it's a very small-scale film. It stars the late, great Brian Dennehy. It's produced by Spike Lee, also features a terrific performance by a great young actress called Lex Scott Davis. Um, so don't expect anything too grand with this. It almost feels a little bit like a TV movie. That's not necessarily a bad, th- bad thing. Sometimes the bare bones of a story um, are exactly what you need to get the message across, and Son of the South, in its own very small-scale kind of way, certainly does that. Simon, a time comes in every young man's life where he realises he needs to talk about the TV and film news of the week, and I think that time has come for both of us. Do you want to kick things off? Uh, What have we got here? There's a brand new Bachelorette. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, look, Channel 10 confirmed uh, just this week that the first Indigenous woman to play the Bachelorette uh, has been cast in the series. Brooke Blurton is a Noongar Yamicha woman. Um, She previously appeared opposite Nick the Honey Badger Cummins in Season 6 of The Bachelor. Um, And she is a beautiful, very likeable young woman and will, I think, uh, represent the Bachelorette series in all its glory. So uh, well done to Channel 10 and the production companies behind The Bachelor for casting Brooke um, in the lead role. She's 26 years old and will should become a big star out of this. I know, will she though? Like, who was the last Bachelorette? You see, no, I've got to do my research to understand those sort of questions, Dan. I've actually <laughs> never seen a full episode of The Bachelorette. I just thought it was significant that she was cast in it. But um, let's, fingers crossed for her. But I'm just wondering, like, how many of these reality stars are really remembered six months later? And they never really cut through beyond that reality bubble. It's just interesting. Two words, Cavalieri. From The Hills. Now, this week saw the release, and we haven't got this in the running sheet, but I will tell you that The Hills, the return, is happening on one of the channels, and I am all over it, baby. Christine Cavalieri. Okay, I have to ask a question. Who's Christine Cavalieri? All right, okay. We'll take this up at some other time, but come on. (laughs) Heidi Montag? Did you ever watch The Hills? I know who Heidi Montag is. Like, she cut through. I don't know about this Cavalieri lady. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, I'll send you all the saved tabs I've got on my computer with Kristen Cavalieri in it. She was in the she was in the, the show last year that fell in a heap because she divorced her husband um, that was compulsive viewing for my television. Yeah, again, like, this is one of these reality bubbles. These people just don't necessarily always cut through. In fact, most don't. Oh, boy. But anyway. You are, you, you, no, there will be a whole people out there screaming into their podcast earbuds at the moment saying, Dan, it's Kristen Cavalieri. And I'm sure both of those people will get over it. <laughs> Simon, let's move on. The big news this week is that Warner Media and Discovery Inc. are merging. 
I'm sure people are well across the news story by now, but for those who may have missed it, the quick version of the story is that AT&T bought what we once knew as Time Warner. The plan was to beef up the HBO streaming service, add in a whole bunch of Warner Brothers library titles, and then compete with Netflix. But that wasn't so easily done. Netflix is a huge titan. They're spending $20 billion a year on content. We discussed this a couple of weeks ago. AT&T do not have that sort of money to spend. They can't compete at the Netflix level. The merger at Discovery Inc. helps them compete at that level. Or so Wall Street says, me, I say it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense from a content perspective. Warner Brothers movies, TV shows, HBO stuff, that's all premium TV. Even the low-class stuff is actually still pretty classy. Meanwhile, the Discovery content is really great for linear TV, but on an on-demand streaming platform, the form and value of it doesn't really work. Discovery Inc. is still profitable though, so that's where the value of this still lies. Where I reckon this is heading though is for a third merger, and a combined Warner Media Discovery Inc. is really great for that. The library would fit really nicely with, say, for example, an NBC Universal, which is where the speculation is the hottest right now. Now, the question worth asking for this podcast is this. What impact does it have on Australia? For the short term, I'd say not a lot. Currently in Australia, you've got Discovery Inc. powering a lot of our TV. On Foxtel, you've got a bunch of channels. They've got Discovery Channel, TLC, ID, which I think stands for Investigation Discovery, Animal Planet, Turbo, and then you've got Fetch TV, and they've got even more. So they've got Discovery Channel, HGTV, Animal Planet, Food Network, Travel Channel, Turbo, ID, and TLC. That's a lot of channels. On Free to Wear, you've got Channel 9's got a partnership with Discovery Inc. That's Discovery Content that powers Nine Life and Nine Rush. Like that is all just jam-packed with Discovery stuff. Now, when Disney launched Disney Plus, it went about terminating a lot of its linear channels around the world. There's no indication that Discovery plans to do that here as it starts rolling out its own streaming platform, Discovery Plus. There's also no suggestion that the deal with Warner Media will actually change any of that. The only likely shift I think we're going to see from this merger as it stands is in Australia, you've got the HBO deal. Possibly that might end up being terminated and that's been speculated for a while now. Or maybe it'll shift somewhat if Warner Media decides to launch HBO Max in Australia. Now, there's a very strong likelihood of that happening. That's not a result of this merger. That's just the thing that's happening with the Warner Media content anyway. All cards that are off the table if a third media player gets involved in the merger. So watch this space. At the moment, nothing's going to change, but also soon, everything could change. There's been a number of articles written, and I read one just this morning from Variety that says that 2021 uh, will be looked back upon a period where the uh, landscape in media in the wake of COVID and with the booming uh, streaming platform markets, it, it will represent arguably the most significant um, seismic shift in the in the media landscape that maybe we've seen in 20 or 30 years. And, and, and what you the picture you paint there um, suggests that's exactly right. Well, I mean, it's not going to be content really broadly affected by this. It's not just TV, but we're seeing this with cinemas. The big question right now is, are cinemas going to be able to open in a way that they had like existed prior to COVID? And there's some really big questions marks around that. In fact, this week in the US, the various uh, cinema exhibitors all came together for a big uh, conference called, something, what was it called? It was like the Big Screen is Back? The Big Screen is Back, yes. We got our man front and centre of that Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> um, 
to do a, a whole series of, of uh, come back to the movies type of uh, reach out to both the, the exhibitors, um, to both the exhibitors, to all the exhibitors and to uh, the people out there as well. And it was kind of a big deal, although at the same time he did announce a TV series, which kind of <laughs> uh, undoes some of his good work. Well, that's, it was such a strange thing. So he's there appearing on a stage and Schwarzenegger's a weird choice because what's the last big blockbuster he had? I reckon it's maybe the sixth day in, in like 2000. Like it's been 21 years. I would point out that uh, the sixth day was not a blockbuster. It was part of the reason why he... <laughs> He, um, he settled down into uh, uh, middle age existence, as I'm thinking, con- contemplating myself. He did go off and become the governor of California, so it's not like he was just hanging around the mansion. I remember those years well. Yes, no, he was. Look, he was. I think he was used to front the the, the big screen is back campaign because he represents such a larger than life figure, and he represents a time in movie going history when the big screen was truly at its biggest, not just because of his obvious uh, um, muscle man girth, but uh, blockbusters, um, movie stars, and the impact they had around the the impact they had around the world was was still tangible. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. I think. I think Schwarzenegger represents to a certain demographic the uh, the the uh, what movie going is is all about, and I would say that demographic is the forty pluses, which seems to be what they were appealing to with this big screen is back. I think we're still going to see the under thirties still turn out for the latest Marvel or the latest DC or the latest Fast and the Furious movie. I think that blockbuster is not going to go away, but it's going to be getting the people who are very comfortable in their armchairs and who have settled into a lifestyle of watching Netflix crime documentaries and straight to streaming movie premieres that they need to get back out into the cinemas. Films like Nomadland will do that. Um, We should point out Nomadland is topping out at about $6 million in the US, so... um, it's not like it's been a, a huge uh, theatrical release. In oh, yeah, that but I mean, regard. cinemas haven't really but been open cin- yet either. So it's, yeah. Well, exactly, yes. As cinemas, as cinemas start to reopen, it's going to be the older moviegoer who still have a great deal of affection for people like Schwarzenegger that come back to I cinemas. I know, they haven't had affection for him for the last 20 years, but let's go on. Uh, but as you said, Schwarzenegger <laughs> does have a new TV show. This is coming to Netflix, and it's going to be a very big deal for them. Huge budget show, and it's basically Schwarzenegger more or less doing true lies. So it's like true lies meets Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So he's a spy who learns that his daughter is actually also a CIA operative, and the two of them have been doing so for years, and they team up and, you know, solve you know, issues of global importance. So that would... But doesn't that sort of counter what you're just saying, that he's not a big enough star for the movies... Yeah. But he is a big enough star for Netflix. Does isn't there a dichotomy there that that, that challenges this is the issue with audiences these days? Which is, uh, I think it's actually an ask to get an audience to turn up for the exact same premise and get them to leave their homes to go and watch this movie. But if it just turns up on their Netflix, I think they're watching it in droves. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that's going to be the challenge to to the new cinema. Um, yeah, and when you look at shows there. like this, which really this is working at the exact same scale as everything they're going to be selling on the big screen, the same scale that Schwarzenegger was selling no, makes the big screen No, work. it isn't. No, it isn't going to work on the same scale. It's working on the small screen. There is still the big screen element that is that can't be ignored with, with these sort of movies. No, no, Nobody's sending Fast and the Furious 9 no, no, or no, the no. latest Jurassic Park movie to no, no, straight to streaming. No, no, but the actual scale of production is very similar. You look at the most recent Marvel show, the... Uh, Winter Soldier, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, and the scale of that, like, sure, it was paced differently, but a lot of the set pieces were fairly comparable. 
Uh, yes, and suffered by not having the, the benefit of a big screen to watch them on. Well, I mean, that's really an issue of um, generational thing. I guarantee there's a lot of younger people who really did not mind watching it on their smaller screens. But anyway, but talk uh, about, we are going to argue about, about this in every podcast. But the scale of production is effectively the same. So Schwarzenegger is saying, come to the big screen, watch this. But also, I'm going to be starring in this thing on a small screen, which will look exactly the same. So, you know, that, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. But the thing I want to get to with the Schwarzenegger show is that it will be starring, his co-star in it is Monica Barbaro, who you can also see this weekend in Army of the Dead, the Zack Snyder film that we just discussed moments ago. Oh, there you yeah. go. The crossover. In other big news, Amazon uh, moving ahead with investment in the Australian marketplace in a scale that we haven't seen yet. Uh, seven Australian productions, original productions, are going uh, before the cameras. A lineup of a product that includes documentaries, comedies, one in there from executive producer Kate Blanchett, um, a new uh, comedy from the uh, the two Kates, Kate McCartney and Kate McLennan, is also happening. Um, some uh, musicals and some uh, terrific uh, anthology series as well. So the um, the Amazon people are, are, are doing like they're doing all around the world, investing in local content in local markets, um, and that's going to be a big deal for the small screen watchers. One of the stories that used to be a big deal but kind of isn't anymore, and you'll understand why in just a moment, is the US networks announced their various TV shows they'll be kicking off with in September. Uh, a whole bunch of shows that you may have known from, you know, time gone by have been cancelled in the last few months. So things like, say, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Superstore. And in their place is a whole bunch of brands, which you're probably very familiar with, including things like more FBI shows, more CS- NCIS shows, more CSI shows. Like these branded shows that are very memorable and known to people already are getting brand extensions and so say hello to csi vegas say hello to fbi international say hello to ncis hawaii simon how excited are you right now can you tell by my face (laughs) can you tell by my face that i am not excited at all in fact this reminds me of the raft of uh boring uninspired sequels that saw cinema audiences plummet 20 odd years ago um i don't think the broadcast sector is doing themselves any favors by just rehashing past successes um that still continues on for big screen properties as well of course but um for tv to just rehash the svus and the ncis's and the csi's it's dyslexia television it's just all these mixed up numbers that mixed up letters that um i can't fathom has any appeal other than from a corporate perspective of being able to piggyback them into syndication so um yeah that that is that is kind of why these shows exist so these are Essentially, yep. what's happening is you've got, and the US market's a bit different to Australia in that all the US broadcasters also own streaming and cable services. So they've got an investment in this content living off in other platforms away from broadcast. But what they need to do with the broadcast channels is just keep on running them for as long as they can and drive as much money and milk it for as much as they can over the next like five to 10 to 15 years as they start to completely fade off entirely to irrelevancy. And the way to really do that is to keep on having these brand extension shows. So you can launch a brand new program. So for example, ABC will launch a new show called Abbott Elementary. It doesn't matter how good Abbott Elementary is. It's not going to be a hit on the service because viewers just aren't coming to broadcast anymore. They're already on streaming. They're already just consuming their TV in other ways that'll be away from the broadcast of ABC. And that show may perfectly live on in a library away from ABC, but it won't actually be a hit on the ABC network. The Wonder Years, which is a revival of the show that, 
you know what the one years is. Uh, like that might do okay. It'll be a decent sized hit for ABC, but they're never going to get big numbers back. But the way they can maintain a stranglehold on the viewers that exist right now and ride that through for a few years still to come is by just extending, just create a new NCIS and on they go. Speaking of rehashed IP properties, HBO Max is uh, reinvesting in the Batman and Superman franchises for their animated shows. Do you know a little bit about this? Um, yeah, so this is actually a bit more interesting than it sounds. So J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves, and Matt Reeves is the guy that's directing and has written the new Batman uh, live-action movie that's coming out. They're doing a sort of fairly noirish take on Batman, so a bit of a throwback to the early 90s Batman cartoon that had a bit of uh, cross-cultural cut-through back in the day. And uh, like that's probably going to be a fairly decent-sized hit. But the one that actually catches my attention a bit is that they're doing a new big-budget Superman cartoon to go along with it. And this will have Jack Quaid, who's son of Dennis Quaid and star of The Boys. Uh, he's going to be voicing Clark Kent slash Superman. But what I find interesting here is that the show will be sort of a fairly family-friendly affair. So in the way the Batman cartoon will be a bit more sort of tailored towards the grown-ups in the audience, this is actually going to cater towards the kids with enough there for adults to want to be interested in watching it as well. And I think that's incredibly important right now because Superman, not necessarily seen as the most sort of kid-friendly character, and so this is going to be a very big way to bring in an audience who maybe had moved on from Superman and actually find a new touchstone for them to make Superman a viable character for generations to come. And finally, as part of our news section, you've got news about a new Mouse Rat album. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Look, if you're not a Parks and Recreation fan, like you probably don't know Mouse Rat. <laughs> but Mouse Rat were a band that existed in the show. And it was a long running sort of, uh, it was part of the texture of Parks and Recreation. So if you're a was fan of Was this Chris show, Pratt's band? So yeah, was Chris, Chris Pratt, Pratt was the lead oh, of Mouse Rat. And they were yep. not a good band, but you know, the fans of Parks and Recreation will be very excited to know that Mouse Rat yep. have an album coming out called The Awesome Album. It'll feature their hit single, 5,000 Candles in the Wind, which everyone would remember from <laughs> the various porny uh, festival shows. And there's uh, collaborations on there with famed jazz legend Duke Silver, which is really the uh, Ron, Ron Swanson character, and also local porny band Land Ho, which music fans may sort of recognize a few key figures from Wilco as the... Um, as the band members there. Uh, but anyway, it's an album coming out in August and I'm going to be very excited to fire up the Spotify and then maybe listen to it once or twice and move on with my life. Is Pratt out front? Is he doing the vocals? Oh, look, I don't even know what the deal is with these songs. So uh, 5,000 Candles in the Wind, a.k.a. Bye Bye Lil Sebastian. <laughs> this song, like, it's probably one of the pre-records from the show, but I don't know if these are songs that they had already recorded and I'll just be using the existing okay. recordings or if this is going to be a brand new recording going out. I have no idea, but I like that it exists. That sounds like a lot of fun. I think it's about time we let someone else do the talking. I am chatting with Natalie Bibeau. She's the director of The Walrus and the Whistleblower. The only way to do a story like the Greenland is to have an insider. That was Phil DeMers, the first whistleblower. I was witness to things that people would never imagine. In response, Greenland's head veterinarian insisted the animals there are well taken care of. That was the choice. Walk away, move on, and look the other way, or save Smooshy. 
This is a classic David versus Goliath battle about a former animal trainer turned whistleblower, a man named Phil Demers, who takes on an iconic marine park in the Niagara region in an attempt to free a walrus named Smoochie uh, from alleged neglect and abuse. It is one man's story, but it's also the story of um, corruption and how uh, the almighty dollar can often uh, trump the the uh, more noble intentions of mankind. Um, let's have a listen to Natalie. She joins us from her Canadian home to talk about the walrus and the whistleblower. As someone who supports the cause of, of closing down zoos and 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 uh, and marine parks, I, I was I jumped all over this film, but it very quickly became clear to me that it was a as much a character study of this gentleman as as it was an expose of marine land. Was that always the intent? Yes. So when I first started to think about making this film, I was making it in the space of films like Blackfish in the Cove um, and other films which uh, go into great depth on the issues around marine mammals in captivity in various forms. Um, and so I absolutely, from the beginning, wanted to make something different. I wanted to put my own imprint on the issue, but through a human lens. Because one of the things I think we forget is that behind this animal story, there are compelling human stories of people who care for the animals, people who caught the animals, people who were trying to release the animals. And this particular story was close to my heart because it had been going on in my hometown where I grew up and it involved um, a guy that I knew as a kid, somebody that I grew up with. So I was always coming at this through the lens of the human mess, essentially, that can be created in these kinds of situations. Having grown up with Phil and knowing him, as I understand, was one of your brother's friends. Um, what was it about his personality that you wanted to capture? And what was it that ultimately surprised you about him? Uh, he surprised me continuously. Um, I, I hadn't uh, spoken to him in over 20 years when I first approached him to make the film. So I knew him as this little shit disturber of a kid who um, really didn't care about much at all when we were growing up, didn't have a whole lot of conviction or direction. And so to see him as an adult with intense conviction and direction to the point of excluding a lot of other things, having what someone might call tunnel vision, in fact, um, around this issue, that surprised me right off the top. And then as I started to sort of get to know him as an adult, understanding the layers of how he behaves in the world, how he deals with conflict, um, the uh, obsession that he has with social media, what, how that plays out for him. And then the flip side of that, the softness and vulnerability, because what's on Twitter is this personality who is uh, abrasive and bold and willing to say things other people won't say. Um, and, and sometimes to his own uh, detriment and to the detriment of others because he is um, existing a little bit in a vacuum. But what, what's on the flip side of that is this incredibly vulnerable, um, insecure person in a, lot, in a lot of ways who can be quite likable and uh, wants to please people and, and wants to be trusted and trust others, but has issues with that. And so the complexity of his psychology, um, I was allowed into it in full force, which I have to give him credit for, because he allowed me to see all the parts of himself so that I could choose how to tell this story um, through that character lens. That takes me to my next question, next question which are these incredible scenes um, in the kitchen? with Chris and, and mm -hmm. surrounding Mama the cat, um, which yeah. I wasn't expecting as part of my um, <laughs> anti-theme park documentary, but which 
really defines so much of, about uh, what the film's about. Yeah, and thanks so much for bringing up Mama because she's a, a great example of um, the kinds of signposts and things I was looking for when I was in production to be able to pull off this character treatment um, and this, um, this human lens that I kept wanting to apply. And the way that that happened was that um, as soon as I started filming with, with Phil, Mama was in virtually all the shots, right? She'd climb up on the table as we were doing an interview. And of course, in the beginning, we're trying to get her off the table. We're trying to get her out of the shot so we can focus on what we're doing. And it occurred to me very quickly that, wait a second here, once I heard the story of how Mama came into his life, the fact that she was taken from Marineland, let's say rescued from Marineland, in a way that Smooshy could not be rescued from Marineland, um, I started to think, well, let's just keep an eye on what's going on with Mama. Let's keep an eye on Phil's relationship with cats, which in many ways, um, is stronger than his relationship with people. You know, his, his relationship with animals uh, is more comfortable for him, I would say. And so as I was watching this unfurl, what happened one day is that I came to his house and we were gonna shoot a scene that had to do with his lawsuit. But he was incredibly distracted, very upset because mama had fallen ill. And the bell went off for me there, I realized, oh, I better start following Mama a little more closely to see what happens. And without giving too much away, she does turn into a minor storyline that helps evoke the loss and longing uh, of Phil's former life with his um, girlfriend, who was also a trainer at Marineland. And so this kitchen and these cats uh, become a symbol of what they have lost and what, how they're grappling with that now. Halfway through our interview, we finally get to mention the walrus in the room, Smooshy, is um, uh, you didn't have access with your cameras. You use archival footage in the film. Um, how tough was that to, to shoot around? How did you adapt to Marine Land not being open to, to having um, you on the lot? I was hopeful to the very end that they would participate and that I would get access and some people might call me a fool for thinking that but um, I really believed that it, the time had come essentially that the paradigm shift had swung um, far enough that they were they would be willing to have a conversation with someone like me who is not an activist but is from the region who went to Marineland as a kid and who has a certain amount of empathy for this fallen empire if you will. And um, unfortunately, they didn't come to pass. You know, there, I made several attempts. Um, but what was great is that Phil had his own footage about what, what he lived at Marineland. And even, even better than that, uh, I found out that there were multiple broadcasters that went into Marineland in the heyday of the Phil and Smooshy story. And they had shot all kinds of behind the scenes footage of Phil with Smooshy that I could actually license for the film. So that helped bring Smooshy to life. I think without that footage, I would have been in, in bigger trouble. I guess it's the nature of documentary making um, that while you're shooting, you don't control life's narrative, that, that things start to happen and, and, the, and, and you find your film spinning off in directions you weren't expecting. When did you decide to call cut on this film? When did you realize your story had been told or the story had been told? That was as hard as a decision as deciding to make it in the first place. Um, you know, it, it was uh, excruciating because I realized that this story could continue in its status quo form for several more years. I had been following it for three. Um, and uh, I also had to ask myself what kind of, 
what was I going to get from the payoff? And there's, I, I don't want to deny that there would have been payoff if certain things would have been resolved, but I was starting to get resolution on other fronts. You know, part of the film is also about Canada's journey to ban the captivity of whales and dolphins. And so there was closure there. There were a few um, narratives, let's say, that were starting to be resolved. And then this whole Phil and Smooshy story became so ephemeral and universal um, when we think about relationship and loss and identity that I thought to myself, you know, sure, I could keep going for four, five, six more years, and we don't know how long this will last, or I could actually end it, bookend it, and show that really nine years later, you know, from the moment Phil left to when we finished the film, he is still very much in the same position he was in before, and still longing, still fighting, the, the war wages on, the same methods are being used on both sides, not much is changing. Um, and I, I felt that that um, sadness actually was how I wanted to finish the film. And so I, I decided that I was okay with an open ending and in fact, preferred it in the end. Technology has allowed documentary makers to make a lot of documentaries lately. There's a lot of advocacy films out there um, about the issue of, of animals in captivity and the, and the people who were striving to free them in the wake of, Tiger King and Blackfish, as you mentioned, um, are attitudes changing, or I guess more importantly, are laws changing? Is all, is all this documentary voice making a difference? Yes, and it's a question actually that helps some finish uh, my answer to the last question, which is sometimes when you finish films on pressure points or when things aren't quite clear, they can engage more discussion. And that's part of what these films do. Um, you know, the film Blackfish was quite uh, an important tool in the Canadian lawmakers conceiving of a law to ban the captivity of marine mammals, of whales and dolphins in particular. So um, yes, I think, I think, and it's never one film. Um, I think it's, it's a group of films and it's um, multiple voices that come to the table that do start to shift things. And we are seeing uh, changes in laws in France now. Um, there's certain jurisdiction in, jurisdictions in the US that have laws against uh, marine mammal captivity and that limit um, the use, let's say, of these animals. Um, I think we're seeing things change in Australia as well in certain jurisdictions, um, Thailand, various places. Um, unfortunately, the industry is growing in China, which is a counterbalance to all of this. Um, but, uh, but I do see some movement happening as a result of all these films. You've made a wonderful movie in The Walrus and the Whistleblower. Um, Natalie Bibo, thank you so much for being part of Screen Watching and all the very best with the, the rollout of the film. Thank you very much, Simon. It's much appreciated. Thank you so much. That was lovely. They were great answers. It's just a, such a joy to talk to you. Oh, great. Thank you. You too. And you can watch The Walrus and The Whistleblower for free by signing up to the iWonder 14-day free trial period. iWonder is this terrific platform that um, you can see all sorts of factual content programming. Um, iWonder, W-O-N-D-E-R.com uh, for all that information. Simon, we'd like to end the podcast with a look at the week ahead. Uh, new and returning shows. I've got zero interest in this whatsoever, but tell us about Eurovision. <laughs> well, look, Eurovision is a little dance and song contest that's happening all around the world this weekend. Um, we've missed some of the early episodes. Uh, um, this morning, very early at 5 a.m., the uh, the first the second semi final was on. But you can tune in live on Saturday. Oh, sorry, Sunday morning, the 23rd of May at 5 a.m. to see the grand final. And if you don't want to get up, if you can't handle that much sequin at five o'clock in the morning, you can watch the uh, repeats of all the broadcasts. Uh, the first.
First semi-final is on tonight, Friday the 21st of May at 8.30pm. Second semi-final, Sunday the 22nd at 8.30 and then the grand final on Sunday night the 23rd at 7.30pm. All of that is Australian Eastern Standard Time. Um, this is one of the big television events of the year. Unfortunately, Montaigne, the Australian contestant, was bumped in the first semi-final didn't make it through to the next round, um, which is probably a good thing. I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing that someone's there, but um, you will be able to see some of the really wild and crazy musical performances uh, from the uh, larger European continent at those times. Join in for Eurovision. Yeah, sure. Hey, there's some movies that are debuting on streaming. There's the behind-the-scenes concert documentary of Pink. Uh, it's called All I Know So Far, and you can find that on Amazon Prime. Over on Shudder, they've got In Search of Darkness Part 2, which is the follow-up to In Search of Darkness. How do they come up with these titles? And that dives deeper into the practical effects decade of 80s horror films with new interviews from genre icons and industry experts. But of course, Settle in terms in, of streaming, the big things are obviously the Zack Snyder Army of the Dead, which I think most people will be watching later tonight, and also Master of None Season 3, which drops on Sunday, which is an unusual day for a streaming drop. But here we go. Uh, around the country also in cinemas is the new Isabelle Huppert film called The Godmother in which she plays a French Arabic translator who decides to use her inside knowledge of drug trafficking to launch her own um, uh, crime empire Huppert is always good on screen this one has had a lot of um, great critical acclaim coming out of the the, uh, the continent. So check out The Godmother. Also in cinemas is Sunflowers. This is a look at Vincent Van Gogh's Sunflower series uh, by director David Bickerstaff, and he um, asks a lot of very pertinent questions and solves a lot of the mysteries surrounding some of these iconic works. That's as part of the exhibition on screen series, which is happening uh, around the country as we speak. Uh, in terms of some special events happening around a place, there's the St Kilda Film Festival happening at the Astor in Melbourne, and that's a collection of short films that's referred to as the most comprehensive overview of the national short film industry. Great film festival, the St Kilda Film Festival. Happening in Sydney, this is an interesting one. Uh, the Trash Video Team, led by Andrew Leivold, um, has a Filipino roadshow going on. Now, this is for crazy nights of some very bizarre B-film madness from the Philippines. Um, Andrew Leivold is a man who made the film uh, about Weng Weng, the uh, three-foot James Bond Filipino action star a few years ago. He has brought to Sydney uh, for these few nights some of the craziest Filipino B-movies you will ever see. Next Friday, the 28th of May, uh, you'll be able to see W is War, which is kind of a Death Wish meets Mad Max 2 film, and The Killing of Satan, this very bizarre Catholic horror show which has snake women and magic amulets and demonic goons. Um, that is happening next Friday night at the Pink Flamingo Cinema in Marrickville. Then we have the premiere of Bionic Guts and Exploding Huts at the Metaplex in Alexandria, which is his new film about the great uh, legendary cult director Bobby Suarez. Um, and then on Wednesday the 2nd of June for our Central Coasters, there's For Your Height Only, which is the film James Bond send-up starring the great Wang Wang um, so that's definitely worth checking out. Tickets are all at the door. Go to the event page on Facebook, the Trash Video Filipino Roadshow, uh, to see these very rarely seen movies. Some might say they're rarely seen for a reason, but it's a great night out, and Andrew's a, a terrific frontman. Uh, Andrew Leifold, possibly responsible for the only time I've never enjoyed seeing The Room at a cinema. 
Oh no, what happened? Well, okay, so I'm from Brisbane and Andrew yes. Leifold as one of the few sort of cultural figures around always got trotted out to do all sorts of various intros to things around a place. I uh, came yes. out for the room and Andrew clearly didn't really understand much about the room and in, gave like a bit of an explanation as to what to do and basically just said, you know what, people shout things out, just shout anything out. It's all fine, guys. It's all fine. And so this audience <laughs> okay. just, oh God, it was just a painful exercise in being out at seeing a movie at midnight. <laughs> oh my God. Shout out to Andrew if you're listening. Thank you, mate. Uh, um, also, yeah, at whatever. The, the, the Byron but. <laughs> The Byron Bay Underground Film Festival starts this weekend. I mention it because it's featuring the world premiere of a little dinosaur movie made by Gerald Arashianato. It's called Claw. Uh, I've had a chance to see this ahead of its world premiere. It's a terrific piece of uh, B-movie comedy horror. Um, it's screening at the Byron Bay Underground Film Festival. Go to thebuff.com.au for the rest of the program. And if you're into the Germans, you might want to check out the German Film Festival for 2021. And it's a range of box office hits, feel-good comedies from Germany, weird, um, and award-winning dramas straight from the Berlin L. Uh, and screening at the Capri Theatre in Adelaide is Cruella. It is a uh, the new Emma Stone film. Uh, it's a charity uh, screening for Ride for Sick Kids, supporting Ronald McDonald House. Go to capri.org.au uh, and their events drop down to find out more information about that very worthy cause. And I do note over the weekend there are some screenings of The Last Place Part 2, which will be dropping officially next week, and we'll be talking about that on the podcast, I believe, next week. I think we will. Uh, this week in history, All My Children star Susan Lucci finally wins a Daytime Emmy. She was the um, perennial loser, nominated 19 times, the longest period of unsuccessful nominations in television history. She won on May 21, 1999 to worldwide acclaim. Worldwide acclaim. Nobody watched the Daytime Emmys. Anyway, uh, May 22nd, 1992, we commemorate the final appearance of Johnny Carson as host of The Tonight Show. On May 25, 1977, Star Wars, never heard of it. Uh, it was directed by George Lucas. L- L- Something Lucas? like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that film was released. Uh, also, Alien came out on May 29, 1979, directed by Ridley Scoot. In the birthdays coming up this week, Laurence Olivier, he'll go on to big things. He was born in 1907 on May 22. Also May 22, our version of Laurence Olivier, Gary Sweet, was born in Melbourne in I 1957. Have, I have a great Gary Sweet story. I'll tell you after the podcast. All right, that means it's dirty. Uh, in 1949, on May 24, the great cinematographer Roger Deakins, uh, he was uh, born. On May 25, funny man Mike Myers in Ontario, Canada, was born in 1963. And on May 26, 1966, which makes her one year older than me, Helena Bonham Carter was born in a little town called London, England. Indeed. Uh, Roger Deakins, if you don't listen to the Team Deakins podcast, you're doing yourself a disservice because it is a great little film pod. It really is. That's the end of this podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. I'm Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. Start your day well with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching. You can find that at alwaysbewatching.com. The newsletter has the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, I drop the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launch during the week. All my words are over at ScreenSpace. That's screen-space.net. My rants about all things cinema. I'm on Twitter at, at SimonRFoster1. Um, do visit the Screen Watching Facebook page at, screen, at Screen Watching Podcast. We have a lot of information, a lot of video content up there to check out what's going on around the world. Um, I'm very excited because I announced the first film of my Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. It came out this week. I'm not 
not going to tell you. I want you to go to the website, check it out, buy some tickets. Sorry, your website or the Facebook website? The uh, Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival dot com dot au rolls off the tongue, but you'll see all information there and certainly on our Facebook page as well. Fantastic. Uh, folks, please follow Screen Watching via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow button. And also a big shout out to our Apple Podcast subscribers who may have noticed the podcast is now back in their feed. Not Yay. our fault. We were part of the great uh, Apple Podcast exodus that people have noticed in their playlists with a whole bunch of shows which haven't been published as normal. But it seems like that's starting to correct itself. And after 35 different emails I sent, I uh, finally managed to get always reached. That was this podcast called Screen Watching uh, back in people's podcast feeds. Huge shout out to you, Dan Barrett. You put a lot of work in to get that happening for the listeners and to get yours and my words out there through the week. So thank you, buddy. Look, people need to hear it. Anyway, folks, this has been Screen Watching. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week talking about The Last of Us and a whole bunch of other movies and TV shows that are hitting your screens next week.